Welcome along to the Care Team Sessions podcast. This is a podcast of talks from our monthly CPD events. For those that aren't already familiar with us, the West Midlands Care Team is a charity pre-hospital enhanced care team operating in the Birmingham area for over 30 years now. Care Team Sessions CPD events have something for all clinical levels from community responders right through to experienced in-hospital clinicians along with medics from other services like police and fire. We want to share the team's knowledge and experience with you. So Care Team Sessions is free to attend or to listen back to on this podcast. It's also an opportunity to raise money for the charity, which would help us to continue to do the work we do. If you'd like a CPD certificate for listening to this podcast, we ask for a donation of five pounds. Details of how to donate and claim your certificate are in the podcast description. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media. Search at WM Care Team. Enjoy the podcast. So I'm going to attempt to talk to you about the collapsed neonate and um, try and give you a, a tool or a way of approaching um, how to assess those tiny people that probably the majority of you who I'm assuming I've got mostly paramedics in the room, um, don't see them very often. Um, and it's the reverse for me. So I see tiny people all the time. I don't see big people all the time. So probably how you feel about tiny people is how I feel about big people. Um, but I've taken that leap into the dark side and um, hopefully we can share some knowledge. I just want to introduce who, who am I? You know, what, why, why am I standing here talking to you about this subject? Well, there's lots of things about me, like there's lots of things about you. Uh, and those things make you who you are and, and allow you to, to have the approach that you have towards all the patients that you'll see. So in the middle, you can see 25 years. So I've actually worked in a paediatric nurse. That is my background for 27 years now. And out of that time, 25 years has been working in PICU. So you can imagine the step over into adults. It's been quite a thing, but you know, they're loving me lots and it's all good. Um, I like to ride around in ambulances bigger than yours, more fancy than yours. Feel free to come and look at them. We're about to get some new ones. Disco lights, iPads, in-flight movies, it's all there. <laughs> Um, I'm a family person, I have a husband, I have two children, and I'm a dance mom. So, you know, I'm not just a paediatric nurse, I'm a dance mom. <laughs> if you've ever watched the programme, it's true. <laughs> and whenever anyone's doing these talks, you know, particularly fair mum learning, you've got to have a picture of you in a helicopter or doing something really fancy. So that was me in helicopter on Monday this week. So, so that's me. So I'm a paediatric nurse, but I've gone into advanced practice um, and now I've decided to spend a little bit of time with bigger people. So the aim of this is to help you to have a bit more of an understanding about the common presentations of the collapsed infant or the neonate, the very young infant, and have a strategy of how you can approach that rapid assessment. And then on that assessment, decide how quickly you need to make any interventions and how quickly you need to move forward. So, 
a sick little people scary? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Why? Is it yes? Is it no? I think I can guess this. So you have, these are timed, you have 25 seconds, so you can't think about it for a long time, otherwise we will run out of time tonight. Okay. One second, go. Okay. So it's no surprise, the vast majority of you are saying yes they are. The five who don't, hmm, I'd quite like to meet you. <laughs> I think they're scary too, and I do this all the time. But why? Tell me why you think they're scary. Yeah. Parents. Unpredictable. They're small. They can't speak. They go from zero to 100. Yeah, they deteriorate quick. They make a lot of noise. Um, you've got limited exposure. They can't tell you um, what's wrong. They can't communicate with you. They cry a lot. Uh, some people feel there's a lot of responsibility there. So, you know, there's lots of things that make us feel anxious. You've only got big equipment. Okay, well, you know, maybe we can think about that. But there's lots of reasons why, but I think the biggest one really is because we don't get a lot of exposure. You see big people all the time, you're used to seeing them. And similar to like what John was saying, you, you revert to what you know and you feel safe when you've got that, uh, that, that situation. As soon as there's something different, it's like, oh, hang on a minute, I, I can't even remember how to take a pulse anymore, you know? Three quarters or more than three quarters of paediatric, and when I'm saying paediatric, I'm talking about neonates as well, of cases will show that there's signs up to an hour before they would have a respiratory or cardiac arrest, right? The key is to pick up these ones, and that's where you are so vital as being in the pre-hospital environment, because most of these unpredicted collapses they could have been identified and they could have been prevented. This is what we want to prevent is cardiac arrest in children and babies. In adults, it's more likely to be a primary cardiac event. They'll have had an arrhythmia, they'll have an MI, something like that. That's not the case for our paediatric patients. Majority of them will have started with a hypoxic event. Okay. They'll have respiratory failure first. And when that respiratory failure is unrecognized and progresses, they will then um, go on to have cardiac failure because of the profound hypoxia that has been going on before that event. There are still those few children that will just have weird events, the weird and wonderful, that's no different to even in adult practice that there's those outliers. But this is the majority. And this is why if you can pick these signs up when they're in the respiratory distress phase, then actually, hopefully you can prevent this cardiac arrest happening. Because if you do end up in a cardiac arrest with a child or an infant, the outcome is very poor. For a pre-hospital, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest survival, is something tiny like five percent 
Well, mortality in PICU in itself is only 4%. So actually, if they're having that cardiac arrest before they get to hospital, the chances of them surviving it intact are almost zero. And I don't mean to put that as a big responsibility, you've got to get it right, but this is where we can make a difference, okay, in that first hour, that first half an hour. There's lots of reasons, like adults, that children get admitted to hospital, but the vast majority, so all of, like a third, are respiratory illnesses. So upper respiratory illnesses, bronchiolitis, pneumonias, maybe asthma exacerbations, and then the rest of them are all just small uh, other instances, some convulsions, but the vast majority is respiratory, and that's where you want to pick this up. I'm sure you all know about this, cardiac arrest etiologies in children, so they'll start with either some sort of respiratory depression or some respiratory obstruction, so it might be that they've had convulsions and they're... Um, uh, they're hypoventilating post-ictal, or they've got some, um, they're having an exacerbation of asthma, or they've inhaled a nice cherry tomato, um, you know, and they go into respiratory failure, into cardiac arrest. There are also these ones that do start with a hypovolemic situation. So they might have had major blood loss from trauma. These are rare. They might have had a severe burn. These are rare. Um, vomiting to actually progress to a circulatory failure from vomiting that's got to have gone on for generally a long time and then you've got your sepsis as well which we're going to touch on and, and that's the other side um, that i think is really important for you to be able to pick up on so traditional assessment that you know we teach in med school is you know you have the history of the presenting complaint and what's your past history and you know how about your brothers and your sisters and your cat and your dog and you know everybody down the street and then you do an examination and you have lots of lovely time and then you come up with a nice lovely uh, list of differentials and then from that we can make a plan of the treatment and this is what we do in hospital okay unless you're an intensivist like me we're simple folk we're jack of all trades, okay? We look at things in a much more structured way, in a simpler way that doesn't take up too much cognition. So we think about, we use our alphabet, the same as you do for everything, because no matter how stressed you are, I bet you'll all still be able to recite the alphabet. So we think, is the airway, is there a problem? Can I treat it? And then I move on. Breathing, is there a problem? Can I fix it, move on? Okay, and this is the approach I want you to be thinking about, which is exactly the same as what you do for your adult patients. So it's still reverting back to what you know, rather than thinking of doing something in a very different way because they're very little. It's about looking for those problems systematically, what you've all trained to do. So recognising that sick child can be quite hard in a busy ED, in a, a pre-hospital setting, where um, things are changing, there's lots of people, there's lots of noise. It can be quite difficult to get that initial assessment. But really there's you know, two questions that I need you and will want you to answer. Is that child big sick? Is that child little sick? And how quick do I have to move on to the next stage? Okay. 
There's triage tools that can be helpful for all that, but they can have different meanings and different scenarios, whether it's trauma, whether it's illness. Okay? And we need something very simple that we can do in a 30 second look. And that's something called a pediatric assessment triangle. Has anyone heard of it? Yeah. It's great and it's, I think it's fabulous for a pre-hospital setting. It's that first look, that first impression, because you've got to make that decision quick. Where, how quick am I moving here? So if you've all seen it, you're aware of this, there's the three sides and we're just looking, what does that child, that baby look like? What's their tone like? Are they interacting with you? Are they floppy? Are they quiet? Are they inconsolable? They're crying, 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 crying. No matter what anybody does, they can't, um, they can't you know, soothe the baby. Are they looking at you? Do they fix and they follow? Is the cry different? Is mom telling you, he's not cried like this before? I've never heard him cry like this. And we look at the breathing. Does it look comfortable? Now, I'm not saying you've got to stand there and count the rest straight away, but does that child look like they're struggling, that infant? Are there retractions, are recessions? Are they gasping? Is it very fast? And the nasal flaring, all these things that you can just do in a quick look. And then you're looking at the circulation. What does the skin look like? And I know that can be difficult with different ethnicities, but you know, maybe you need to put your hands on, actually touch the patient. What does the skin feel like? Do they feel cold? Are there demarcations with the coldness? Okay. Do they look blue? If they're of darker skin, you might need to look into the mucous membranes. Do they, you know, look at the fingernails, these sorts of things. There's a very quick way. But what does that mean though? So you can look at your three sides, but you've got to decide, are they big, are they little sick? If just one side of those has got a compromise, I would say they're, they're little sick. Okay, they're poorly. They're gonna to need to see a pediatrician but you don't really necessarily have to go racing around. But if there's two sides of that triangle have got some sort of compromise, I would be saying you need to think this is a big sick baby, this is a big sick child, and I need to move quickly. They're at risk of going into shock if they're not already shocked. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. So it's that ABC, it's that initial very quick history off mum, off dad, off whoever the carer is there, what's happened, why did they call for an ambulance today? A thorough, a thorough history about family and big background, that can be done later in the, in the hospital, that secondary assessment can be done if, once you've done that very quick look. So, if we're saying, you know, there's this lovely triangle there, what else can help us with our assessments? So we can use a triangle, but what else? Pews, parents, lovely parents, vital signs, observations, parents' opinion, nice traffic lights. Yeah. So these are all the things that I like, I'm liking to see. Pews, however, I'll be on the fence with pews. So we get referrals into our critical care service and they tell us the pews. Pews is not standard. 
So each hospital might be slightly different. So you might have what you use within the ambulance service, but that might not mean anything to somebody else that doesn't work in that same service. So it has a place, but really only within the, the specific area you're working with and with people that are used to your Pew system because there is some variance. It would be lovely if it was standard across the country, but it's not. But I'm liking the parent concern, you know, and because parents, they are the experts. They know if their baby's not right. And if there's something that's worrying them, they might not be able to explain what it is, but they know there's something not right. So that must be really high up on the list. So present the parent, playing distraction, maybe slightly for the older child, but if they're very upset, and you just have a little play, you know, what are they like? Have they been interacting? What's that, you know, can you distract them at all? Um, communication, it can be helpful and also not helpful. So the, their ability to communicate with is, is different, but are they communicating in the way that they ordinarily would? Are, are, they, are they responding the way you would expect a baby of that age to, to respond to you? Pain management, pain and fever can be very distracting and, and can really um, affect your assessment. Actually, a child that's very febrile may be not so sick, but they'll be very tachycardic and they might be quite flushed and they're feeling not, you know, they might be feeling quite lethargic, which could trigger two on your triangle. But actually, if they had, had just give them some paracetamol, might bring the fever down, then suddenly they're not no longer so tachycardic um, and they, you know, perk up a little bit. I'm sure anybody who's seen children that were, I mean, I've done it myself, you think that they're, you know, dying in front of you and you give them a bit of Calpol or some ibuprofen and suddenly, you know, they're running around and, and happy as Larry. So thinking about those, have, if they seem to be in pain, give some analgesia. Um, I don't know how that fits in with like your SOPs and what you are and aren't allowed to, to give. But that may be if you feel that that's a big issue, call for somebody who can help with that. I think that's something that children and babies get a raw deal of um, pre-hospitally um, is that they're often not analgesed as well as we could because it can be just difficult to understand. So why are little people, when I'm now talking about neonates, so those infants that are up to a month old, why are they so vulnerable? So why is it important that I'm talking about this today? What is it about them? Their anatomy, physiological reserves, bigger surface area, yeah, they can get quickly, very quickly. Uh, immune system, uh, they can get cold, temperature cold. I'm loving all of these things. And brand spanking you. Yeah, I like that one. They are. Um, <laughs> they can't speak. Similar things to what we said already. Um, but these are all very important things to be thinking about. But if we break it down into our structure, our ABCD, so the airway, so the size of the airway is significant. It's smaller 
I know that sounds very obvious, um, but the reason why younger babies who maybe get an RSV infection or an upper airway um, infection, they get a little bit of swelling in their airway, maybe one millimeter. If we had that amount of swelling in our airways, we probably wouldn't really notice it, or we might just feel a little bit of a blocked nose. If you've got a neonate's airway, and the size is significantly smaller, maybe it's only four millimeters to start with, and you then put one millimeter of um, edema in that airway, all of a sudden the resistance in that airway is increased massively, and that's when they struggle, okay? So also they have a big occiput, so they're very easily, if, they're, um, if they become unwell, less responsive, that the chin can drop down and very easily they can occlude the airway. Um, so if they've not been noticed by the parents to be less, less active and they've been placed on their back, suddenly they can obstruct the airway. The tongue is big compared to the mouth and it can be very easy. That can also fall back and block the airway. Tonsils, certainly for the bigger children, are big compared to us as adults. So again, a little bit of edema can make a significant difference. Also the airway, the larynx, the position of the larynx and the, the shape and the length of the trachea uh, is much smaller. Um, we used to talk about that the, the larynx was the narrowest part and we talked about a, a cone shape. Um, so that's why we didn't use cuffed endotracheal tubes. That's actually been found with MRI scanning to be not quite so true. There is an element of that, but it's not quite as significant as it was felt to be. And now with modern day um, ET tubes, we do use cuffed tubes right down to newborn size. Um, so, so, but it is smaller. Then if they get this edema and it's more difficult and the resistance in the airway is more, then with the breathing, that then becomes more difficult. So their chest wall is far more pliable than yours and ours. The ribs are more bendy. Um, the respiratory muscles have not developed yet. So we have nice big muscles in between our intercostals and also our ribs are a different shape. So our ribs are like bucket handles and the neonates are much straighter and they don't have the muscles in between that we have. So if we need to take bigger breaths because we've got you know, a, a pneumonia or something, we can lift our ribs up and out or using those muscles like so. Neonates can't do that because the ribs are already far more horizontal and the muscles haven't developed yet. So that's why they get the retractions, the recessions, because it's so more pliable. Um, they're much more reliant on their diaphragm than you and I are. So if they get any problem with their abdomen that maybe pushes up against the diaphragm, they can suddenly get um, more difficulty in their breathing. Um, and they just have a varied rate, you know, for us looking at them, you know, you've got a spectrum of ages that will have different rates. <clears throat> and then if we go on to circulation, their blood volume is significantly less than yours and ours. So in a neonate, they've probably got about 80 mils per kilo of body weight of circulating volume. So if we say a decent size newborn of you know, three and a half, let's say four kilos for ease of maths, 
What's right? It's 30, oh, it's 32. 320 mils. God, that's testing me at this time of night, isn't it? It's a Coke can. It's a Coke can of blood. So even a small volume loss can actually be quite significant to a small baby. And I don't necessarily mean overt bleeding, but maybe bleeding into a head or bleeding into somewhere else internally can be significant. And then with disability for the older children, the psychology, but the development is, is just varied uh, and it changes as they age and that can make it difficult for um, us to, to be able to understand them. And then you mentioned the body surface area. So the body surface area to weight ratio is much higher. Um, why, it, what, why is that significant? They do lose heat faster, yeah, absolutely. And where's the biggest focus of heat loss? The head, absolutely. So if you're gonna take them outside, ask them if they got a hat, okay? Just little things like that can make a huge difference because a cold neonate will decompensate very, very fast. Okay? It's, it's the, one of the triad of death, basically, of, of small infants if they get cold. Just want you to take a couple of, well, a minute, a minute to think about um, a time when you had uh, an experience with a tiny person or someone came, you know, one of your colleagues said, oh my God, I saw this patient today. It was this, that and the other. Were they able to predict or were you able to predict they might get worse? And were you able to articulate that? Just have a little think about that for a minute. And then maybe, up here, what was helpful or not helpful about that experience? Okay. So there's there's quite a theme. There is a theme here again. So the parents being there, you found helpful, but senior support or a, a good mentor, someone who's maybe been there before, who's experienced something before, there to help you with that. Um, an enhanced care team, or advanced care on the scene to, to help. Um, and that's what we're there for, is, is to support you. And if you get there and you think this is too much for me, you, you call for help, don't you? You ask for backup. Um, and the paediatric assessment triangle really helped. So that's really good to see. A, para, a panic in para, oh, that was probably not helpful. Panic in para, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, we've all probably been in situations and anybody who says they haven't, well, they're probably lying, really. Um, we had that freeze moment of, oh my God, oh my God, I can't remember what I'm supposed to do. Right? But actually here, people have identified that following an algorithm can really help. It's the same as with your adults and your cardiac arrest algorithms. The algorithms are there. You've got your JR calc and follow those. I, I, even me, after nearly 30 years of spending time with little people, I, I, I'm not gonna admit that I know all the vital signs of all the different ages all off the top of my head all the time. I kind of got a rough idea, but actually if I really wanted to be certain, I'd probably have to look it up as well. And that's okay. So being able to recognize serious illness um, means you've got to be able to uh, correctly observe. 
You've got to understand what the parameters are and know if you're not in the normal parameters, that's where your algorithms will come in and help you. Um, systematic documentation of what you're finding um, is really important because you identified that they can deteriorate very quickly. And for when you're getting into the hospital, that's really helpful for the in-hospital team to understand what has gone on in that half an hour prior to coming into a hospital. It can really make a difference to their decision-making. Um, and that timely referral, that asking for help or that identifying it's big sick, I can't hang around here. I need to just get on the truck and get to Heartlands to you know BCH to wherever's closest where there's people who can help me you know where there's friends so let's just spend a little bit more time on focusing on just the collapsed neonate so generally their presentation will be very non-specific okay and this is where you know it's maybe not very helpful and this is why I think we think or we find tiny people a little bit more scary is because it's so a lot of it's just the same, the same for everything. So they get respiratory distress, they get apneas, because they can't really do anything else, you know? What can they do to tell us that they don't feel very well? They can cry, they can stop breathing, or they can pause with their breathing. Um, their blood pressure can drop, but that's generally a very late sign, but you would see signs of poor perfusion before you got to that point. They'll just stop feeding or they'll go quiet. And these are really all the things they can do. They might get a bit cold. They might drop their blood sugar. And these are the same for lots of different illnesses, okay? But I'm hoping actually that's gonna help you realize that it's a good thing, maybe. So generally, because it's so, it's so general and, and non-specific, the treatments that we need to do are very, very general as well. And these are the things that can make a big difference if you do them quickly, uh, efficiently in those first few minutes. So giving them oxygen. Now I know some people are like, oh, we don't want to give too much oxygen and neonate trials, oh, well, if we give too much, we want the SATs to be between this and we want it between that. Absolutely, if you're in secondary care and you don't, that's the place for that. If you've got a child that's deteriorating a baby in front of you, give them some oxygen because if they're sick, they'll be having a much higher metabolic demand uh, and you need to help them with that. So just give them some oxygen. It's not like they're going to be on it for the next week. You know, it might just be for the journey. Get vascular access. Now I've put IV access, all right? Don't waste your time. Don't set yourself up to fail unless you are, you know, hot with a nice yellow gel coat. Don't stress yourself, just put an IO in. It, it'll save their life, okay? It might feel a bit sore when it goes in, but you know, if they're alert enough that they get a bit upset about it, then actually that's a good thing. Um, it's meant to be, I've never had one myself, no more painful putting an IO in than uh, putting a cannula in. There's videos, you can look at military people getting them put in and they don't really bat an eyelid. What hurts is they actually putting fluid in. Um, but if it's gonna save their life, it'll save their life, okay? You can get a BM off of, um, off of uh, intraosseous blood. 
you usually will get some back. Some people say you'll know you don't really get much back. If it's in the right place, you will get some flat, some blood back, um, and you can do a BM on that. Um, some of this is for secondary care, so you'd send bloods off, ammonias, or blood gas. That's not for primary care. You just need to get vascular access, and IO is your best friend. You know, if they're shocked, treat their shock. Give them some fluids. Don't hesitate in giving the fluids. If you just you think, mm, I'm not sure you can give five mils per kilo, you don't have to give 10, 20 mils per kilo straight away. You can give it in smaller aliquots. Give a bit, see what happens if that's within your skill set. Um, you might need feel that this child's this baby's deteriorating so fast and, and their circulation's failing and they might need support with drugs. So this is where you're gonna be calling the enhanced care teams to come to be able to start maybe infusions of um, adrenaline pre-hospitally. If they are hypoglycemic, treat it. Okay, that's another one of the triad of things that will put a neonate into a very bad downward spiral. So getting cold, hypoglycemic and becoming acidotic, but you won't know about the acidosis because you, you don't have the ability to do blood gases pre-hospitally. But those are the things, and if those two are present, they are likely to be acidotic as well. So if you treat those, hopefully you'll pull them back from that. Doing an ECG is really helpful if you think that they might be in an SVT. If their heart rate is above, 220. If you can get a 12 lead ECG, that can be really helpful for once they're in hospital to be able to identify, is that an SVT? The cardiologists can look at it and be very clever about it and it can help their diagnosis. Um, so don't be afraid to do a 12 lead ECG on a baby. It doesn't hurt, just do it. Um, and I say antibiotics, um, I know that it's not maybe in all of your sphere of practices. And I have learned recently, stepping into the world of FEM, that, that you have to have very set criteria to give some antibiotics in sepsis. And I think this is where it's very difficult with babies because they probably don't meet all of those. They probably won't have a rash. Um, they might do, but, but more likely they're not going to have a rash that you would think is the meningococcal rash. But actually antibiotics should never be missed. They shouldn't be delayed. If you can't give them and you think that they need to have them, that's another reason to convey quickly. Because if you're identifying sepsis, the paediatric sepsis six, the same as adults, we should be giving antibiotics within an hour of identifying suspected sepsis. So if you can't give the antibiotics yourself, get them somewhere who can give them the antibiotics. Um, and I've added in here acyclovir, that's more of an advanced care um, type thing, but we should always consider acyclovir in a neonate that appears to have some, maybe um, a CNS possible infection. Um, and I'm saying early ventilatory support, and that might just be with um, oxygen, just with a bag valve mask to just help support that breathing if necessary, um, and chest x-rays for in-hospital. So what I'm gonna now just talk about is um, the four main, there are more like six categories, but the other two are much more, much rarer. The four main categories of reasons why a neonate might collapse and that you would might want to think about pre-hospitally. First of all, sepsis. This is the most common and the most one that you're most likely to come across. And the key features generally will be respiratory distress 
and they may have pooled perfusion, but that could be a late sign. So you might not see that straight away and they may be shocked, they may not be shocked, but they will probably be very tachycardic. So, so um, babies are very rate dependent. So their cardiac output is very dependent on their heart rate. So they can't stretch their heart and squeeze it much more uh, vigorously and stronger than the way that adults and older children can to get more cardiac output. The only way they can do that is to make the heart go faster. Okay? And that's what you will see. They will probably get cold um, because the metabolic demands are so much that they can't maintain their temperature anymore. And they will probably be hypoglycemic as well. And I've said rash. The likelihood of them having that typical meningococcal rash in the neonatal period is, is much less likely. And I think this is where it's difficult maybe for you guys to be able to give antibiotics if I'm right. Um, so now we're just going to go through some cases. So get you thinking about what you're seeing. So you've um, had a job come through on your CAD and it tells you you've got a, a five day old term neonate. The only history you've got is poor feeding, lethargy and increased work of breathing. Uh, and then you get an update a few minutes later and um, a description from the mom is they look very mottled uh, and the breathing just look like they're breathing very heavily. So I'm sure you're all thinking, oh my God. <laughs> but when you get there, this is what you see and these are the observations. So the air, they're maintaining their airway. They're very tachypneic with a rate of 80. They're hypoxic in room air, sats of 88. They've got some recession, subcostal and intercostal. And when you listen to the chest, you think there may be some decreased air entry, but it can be difficult to differentiate if you're not used to listening to little people's chests. They're very tachycardic at 175. They look a bit pale, they're mottled. Their hands and feet are a bit cool. <laughs> Am I, you know, exciting you all here? You think their pulses may be a bit weak, um, but certainly their perfusion is not great. Um, I'm going to say no murmurs. If you're not used to listening to neonate or hearts, you probably won't pick up a murmur unless it's a stonking great, very loud one. Um, they seem very, uh, they're, they're very quiet. Um, they are a bit floppy, but they do respond to pain when you check um, a blood sugar. Um, the pupils seem to be okay and reacting, um, but then they start to have a few focal jerks, maybe of their upper limbs. The temperature's 35, but their glucose is 1.2. So these are the obviously this is what you found on your assessment. Oh. I don't know why this has done that. Okay. This is you. Okay. Is this baby big sick or little sick? Yeah. Big sick, aren't they? Make us feel not very happy. So what are you going to do? <laughs> Grab and run. Drive quick. Load and go. Diesel. What's diesel mean? Huh? Go. Pre alert, absolutely. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So there's lots of things. You, you know, you're listening, you've given some oxygen, and you're thinking, hit. I've got to go somewhere, somewhere quick, somewhere where there's, you know, I've got some friends who can help me out here. Yeah? Because there really is limited things that you can do, but what you can do is you can do those basics and you can do those basics well, all right? And being able to identify when things are bad, to be able to know to go on quick. So the priorities for your management pre-hospitally for that collapsed neonate that you think has got sepsis is you're giving them oxygen. If you need to support their breathing, you've got a bag valve mask. You're gonna get vascular access. If you can give fluids and antibiotics, you're gonna do that. There was someone said, wait for merit, I'll call for merit. There might be a place in that. I think that's where you need to think about and discuss maybe with um, your senior support. How far are you away from the nearest hospital as opposed to how long would it take for merit to come to you or one of the other enhanced care teams? Because actually you may be quicker to just like some grab and go and diesel um, and you're going to give some glucose if you can, if that again is in, in your remit, um, and you're going to keep them warm. Okay. So there's nothing really fancy about any of that, even though you're thinking, oh my God. Most of this is all within your remit. Hearts then, everyone goes, oh my God, congenital hearts. Okay. They'll generally present if they're not picked up antenatally. So the few that don't will be between sort of day three and day 10. And that's when the ductus arteriosus, do people know what I mean when I say ductus arteriosus? Yeah. So the duct that is there in utero to shunt blood, more, more blood from the pulmonary circulation to the systemic circulation, that's, that closes if it hasn't closed soon after birth, it's within those times. And they will then present usually with some respiratory distress, poor perfusion, tachycardia. They might have pulses present or not. They might be just difficult to feel. They might have a bit of a big liver, but mm, baby's livers are already, already down below their rib anyway. And they might be cyanotic despite you giving oxygen, okay? And that's a big key for you here and a big key of information for pre-hospital. And people can call this the poor man's echo. So you're not, we're not gonna do echoes, diagnostic echoes pre-hospitally. No matter how good you are at doing POCUS, it's not gonna happen, all right? I know my friend, colleagues who love POCUS probably won't like that. But do you know, just put oxygen on, it's quicker, it's easier. Either sats go up or they don't. Simple. You don't need to know what different um, defect it is in the emergency treatment, okay? That's what happens later on with a clever cardiologist, okay? But they will look different depending on which side of the heart the defect is on, okay? So if it's on the right side of the heart, something wrong with that side so something like a pulmonary stenosis so that's a narrowing here of the pulmonary artery or half a tetralogy of fallow which is this four defects in the heart but it's most on the right side 
or TGA, transposition of the great arteries, so the pulmonary so, uh, vessels and they alter the wrong way round. So rather than having a nice figure of eight circulation, you've got two circles and they're not meeting in the middle. That's bad. They'll be blue, so they'll be cyanotic and you can give them some oxygen and they'll stay blue. <coughs> That's diagnostic in my book. If the defect is on the left side of the heart, they're gonna, probably going to be shocked, but they'll be pink, okay? Because they are still getting oxygen. These are things that are called aortic stenosis. So the aorta is narrowed, so not getting much flow. Or they'll have a coarctation, so as the aorta comes round, it'll narrow, and it can narrow at various points. Um, or another one that is very common in this region, because we see a lot of it at Birmingham Children's being a super-regional centre for its hyperplastic left heart syndrome. So the left ventricle basically isn't there, so they're working on a single ventricle. So they will look shocked because they're not getting flow to the body. So they can get oxygen, but they can't get enough flow, or it's re significantly reduced to the body, so they become shocked and they'll be pink. Okay, case two, six day old, born at term, normal delivery, no maternal risk factors for sepsis or anything. They've had a one day history of poor feeding and mum noticed they looked a bit pale and a bit more sleepy today. That's the information you've had, you're on your way. And you're thinking again, oh my God, it's a baby. You get there. And this is what you find and you assess them. So they're maintaining their airway. They're tachypneic. They're not hypoxic. They've got good air entry. They've got maybe a little bit of increased work of breathing, but not terribly so. But they're very tachycardic. Their blood pressure's all right, just, but they look pale. They look a bit mottled. Their hands and feet are a bit cool. You think maybe the femoral pulses are not there, but you haven't felt many in babies before, so they might be, they might not be. The perfusion's bad, they're sleepy, but they do respond to pain, and the glucose is all right, but they're a bit cool. Does this seem quite similar to sepsis? Mm. It's a pain in the backside, isn't it, really? <laughs> so, Oh, I don't know why this is doing points, but anyway. Is this baby big sick or little sick? I don't know how to fast forward this, but I think probably everybody thinking big sick, probably. Yeah. But there's a theme, isn't there? So this might be a heart defect, but actually what are our priorities? We're going to give oxygen. Now, one thing that can be really helpful, again, once they get into hospital, is to do their pre and post-doctoral SATs. Do people know what I mean when I say that? Yeah. SATs on both sides of the body, because that can help tell us uh, if there's a duct, uh, and if it's a duct-dependent cardiac defect. Because there are some cardiac defects that are not dependent on the duct being open. You might have to give a bit of respiratory support. You've got your bag valve mask. Falling BPs, if you feel you've got time helpful, they could be done in hospital. If they're tachycardic, like I mentioned on the previous one, over 220, you can do an ECG. Um, so you're going to get access. Um, 
if you have prostin available in your enhanced team, you start the prostin. Okay, that's what's going to be life-saving for these babies. Uh, glucose, if you need it, and keep them warm. So you've got sepsis and a heart defect, but actually what you're going to do is pretty much the same. Case three then. Um, I'm going to skip over this because this is another cardiac one. Um, it was just uh, slightly different. Um, there are different defects that will present at different times, different ages. Um, and some of them, and this was a question I was asked on shift last night, uh, how old if a child's got a fallows and I see them in the GP surgery, can I be confident that maybe they haven't got a heart defect? Is it once they get to like a year old? But actually this bottom bit down here, right up to adulthood. So there are some people that just get away with it. For some reason, they just get away with it. They might have a stunking big VSD in the, or ASD, and it just doesn't get picked up until maybe they have another illness that tips them over the edge. But there are different ones, and you can look these up. I'm not going to go through all of this because this is not uh, a lecture about cardiology. There are other cardiac things to, to be mindful of, but they won't really change what you do. But if you do have an SVT and the child is really shocked and you feel you're a long way and scooping and running isn't maybe an option, you might need to get an enhanced care team to come and help and to cardiovert either medically or DC cardioversion. Um, so that's where your ECG is really helpful in that diagnosing of if it is an SVT or not. Um, and then there's some very rare things that I'm not even going to talk about in detail here where they can get neonatal myocarditis and neonatal dilated cardiomyopathy, but they are very rare. Um, and the only thing that's really different is we're a little bit more cautious with our fluid resuscitation. So really that's where your approach that you could do with all neonates is just go in five mil per kilo aliquots. Just give a little bit, pause and just see what happens. Okay, the third one that you ought to know about is metabolic. So there are metabolic disturbances that will show up within the first few days of life. And this is usually as feeding is established. Um, but they will present, again, in a very similar way to sepsis, to heart defects. They'll have respiratory distress. They'll have poor perfusion. They'll be shocked. They might be hypoglycemic. They might be a bit encephalopathic. Um, and usually high level of suspicion if there's consanguinity um, with the parents. Do we know what consanguinity means? So if the parents are related, so like first cousins, so we have a lot of metabolic um, problems in the community here in Birmingham. So it wouldn't be unusual for you to come across a baby that might have an inborn error of metabolism. Okay. There's very, very clever doctors who will diagnose what type of um, uh, problem it is, but the key treatments are very similar. So you've gone to a case, you've got there, um, and where's my case with the, oh, the baby cases. This is a five-day-old anyway, called in, poor feeding, lethargy, and you get there. This is what you find. So. They are struggling a little bit with their airway now though. Their conscious level is significantly decreased from the other babies. Um, they're a bit hypoxic, they're tachypneic. Um, they don't really have a big work of breathing and you think the air entry sounds okay. 
They're tachycardic, but not quite as much as the septic ones. They're probably a little bit hypotensive, um, but the perfusion's not terrible uh, and the pulses all feel okay, but they're really not responding to you. You do a blood sugar and they don't respond. Um, you feel the fontanelle, it feels okay, um, but they might be just making some slightly abnormal movements. Um, the blood sugar's okay, but they are cold. So again, it's a very similar picture to others. So what I wanted to know is, is this child big, sick or little sick? Shout it out. Big sick. Okay, what are you gonna do? You're gonna cry? Lots of blue lights. Nina, Nina, I'm panicking, I'm gonna lose my job. Ask, J ask James for an x-ray, okay. Ah, now I like this one. I've spotted this one, stop, stop fees and IV glucose. Somebody knows about inborn errors of metabolism here. Um, yeah, so a lot of this is the same, okay? I know it seems repetitive, but I'm trying to get the message across that it's not so scary because you don't need to know exactly what's wrong. You just need to know what things are broken, okay? Off to see the big boys, <laughs> okay? So the priority of the management is oxygen, look after the airway. You might wanna do still your pre-postdoctoral sats because you're just not really sure. There's no harm in that. You're gonna get vascular access. You're gonna give fluids. Now, although this might be metabolic, you still, we're still gonna give this baby antibiotics until we know otherwise. They might need glucose, they might not. You might need to neuroprotect them if they're very encephalopathic. They might have seizures. These ones are more likely to have seizures than the others, certainly more than the cardiac babies. Um, and this is, is because of the, um, the metabolic derangement that affects the brain and gives them this encephalopathy. Keep them warm, but nil by mouth. So the person who said stop the feeds, absolutely stop the feeds because you need to reduce the metabolic load that's happening. Um, and this is often what is then tips them over to then go into a shocked state is when they start feeding and they'll have to have very specific feeds. But the treatment is mostly supportive, okay? It's the same as the others. And then the final one I want to touch on, and I know it's half past nine, sorry guys, um, is about trauma. So this is the one we don't like to think about, but this is the one we really mustn't forget, okay? Key features of this, these babies will often present of having had an out of hospital cardiac arrest. They're not gonna do very well. They may have, be having seizures, the reason why they're called in. They may have visible injuries, they may not, okay? There may be nothing on the outside to say they've had a trauma. Um, and you need to suspect it alongside the, even with the other diagnoses. So I mean, we say all other causes are ruled out, it sits there with all of them and it's until proven otherwise. And in hospital, we would get neuroimaging um, of any infant and any baby that's collapsed that we can't find an obvious cause for. Um, so this is the final case I wanted to work through, through just briefly, is a three week old male infant, history of poor feeding, found unresponsive by the mother, no history of fever, no known maternal illnesses. And this is a very classic story that you'll get. And they're often, you know, they can be very early in the morning, um, 
and it may be yeah so this is what you find when you assess the baby so they're maintaining their airway their sats are kind of okay the respirate maybe a little bit low what do you think maybe um they've got good air entry but they look a bit gray a bit ashen they're tachycardic a bit hypotensive um, poor perfusion they've got pulses they don't respond when you do a heel prick and when you feel the anterior fontanelle you think it feels quite firm um, and they're hypotonic they're a bit hypoglycemic and once again they're cold again lots of features the same as all the others isn't it i'm going to skip that one do we think big sick or little sick big sick what are you going to do you are the adult right now absolutely you're going to cry a bit more, okay. <laughs> uh, uh, staying alive, fabulous. Who's Brad? <laughs> We're going to give him a ring, are we? Okay, get the ACR ready. You're going to call your mum? Why, what does your mum do? <laughs> okay, call Cosmo. Who's Cosmo? Ah, okay, cool. You know, it's, but really, you know, I know... We're you know coming to the end now, but you know it's it's the same. It's pre-alert, isn't it? Um, one thing though that I haven't put on this slide about the pre-hospital management. So there's the same as the others: oxygen, respiratory support, vascular access, glucose if they need it, keep them warm, and supportive treatment. But if the police aren't there, can we make sure that the police have been called? Okay, because this could then be a SUDIC. And even if the child doesn't die, okay, we still go down the SUDIC protocol because we can always rein back on it, but we can't go back in time. Okay, so if they, they should have come, any history of an out of hospital cardiac arrest, they should come. But I have known instances where we've gone out as a retrieval team and that baby's already been in the ED for an hour, has been through the scanner and intubated. And I've gone, oh, where's the police? And have you started SUDIC? And it's, do you think we should? Mm, yeah. So if they're not there, you know, with your alert, ask whoever you need to ask to alert the, the police because that home then may become a crime scene and they'll need to go and have a visit. Okay. So that's really important. I know it's probably the last thing you're thinking about when you're going, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, staying alive and, you know, hitting the diesel, but it is really important. I'm hoping that what I've got across to you is while there might be sort of the four main differentials for why a neonate might collapse, the way you approach it is the same. You assess it the same. And the majority of the treatments that are appropriate in the pre-hospital environment are the same. Thank you. That's it for this Care Team Sessions podcast. You'll find information on how to get your CPD certificate in the podcast description. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any future episodes. You can also follow us on social media at WM Care Team. Thanks for listening. <laughs>